E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing with the, the program at Cork Buzz and how you got started with that, which is a recent addition to the kind of Union Square area and the wine scene in New York. All right. So Cork Buzz Wine Studio is part wine bar. Um, we have a full kitchen with amazing food meant to go with wine. We also host wine classes, wine-focused dinner parties and events. So you do classes. I, th- I do. That's interesting because, you know, one of the things that people starting up wine bars are often like, well, I don't want to get too much into education. I don't want to feel too kind of heavy on people. But it's something you really embrace, and I think in a way that's pretty approachable for people. I've seen you uh, lead classes yourself, and there's been great attendance, and people seem pretty psyched. So from the beginning, it felt like there was a vision like we were going to have a wine bar, we were going to have a restaurant, but we were also going to do more outreach in terms of seminars and classes. Is that fair well, to say? Well, it's actually sort of the opposite. Originally, I was working at BR Guest and I was constantly being asked, where can I go and take wine classes? Got it. And I knew that there were some, you know, more formal, I guess, wine schools, if you will. Sure. But a lot of times those required you to sign up for 18 weeks in advance and commit every Monday night from, you know, six to nine. And I, I felt that what was missing in the wine scene in New York was a place that almost felt like a yoga studio where you could drop in on classes that interest you at times that work for your schedule a la carte. Absolutely. So originally Cork Buzz was supposed to be a lofted space that was really just going to be a wine studio. Yeah, I remember being really confused because I thought it was in a loft. I remember you saying like a lofted space, and then I went, and it wasn't. And I was like, am I in the right spot? You are. And, but it was a great experience nonetheless. Um, well, but- what happened is it sort of evolved naturally. So I was looking at spaces in New York City, as you might imagine, rel- relatively expensive. And I started thinking about the idea of, okay, so now I've taught you about the region's of Piedmont. You know, I, I just explained Barolo Barbaresco and class is over. Now get out and go find a glass of Barolo with your friends somewhere else. So sure. naturally it became, okay, well, we can have a wine studio. We can have classes, but perhaps we should consider opening a wine bar as well. So after you finish your classes, you can then go and enjoy a glass of Nebbiolo. So it sort of happened in that way. So the wine bar part was actually kind of secondary to the Absolutely. division. The education part was the primary goal. Yeah, originally. for sure. And actually it was surprising because we, we underestimated how busy our wine bar would be. In, in the beginning, we were, all right, it's part of the revenue, but it's not going to be a huge part. Um, and now 
it's almost the majority of it. Wow. We, we have a lot of wine classes and they're really well attended, but every night we're pretty busy. So thankfully. So what was your, um, lead into the educational conduit? Was it work that you were doing for BR guests in terms of teaching the staff? Correct. Yeah. I, um, I used to do this thing called wine college. Okay. It was, um, you know, we had 20 restaurants all over the city. So once a month we would have two or three people from each restaurant come and we would do a, a joint class for them, wine 101. And then we would have, you know, maybe three or four times a week in advanced wine college where we, we focused on a specific subject or region. So it's, that's really how I started teaching. And then I got asked to teach at the French Culinary Institute. So I've been teaching there oh, for okay. about 10 years now. Wow. Maybe not 10. That would make me. Yeah. No, probably like six. Cause you are feels fairly like 10 young, years. Which is something we should talk about. I mean, uh, if you don't mind, uh, how old are you now? I'm 32. You're 32. I'm and, not that young anymore. And you're a master sommelier Correct. and you own your own wine bar. Mm -hmm. So when did you get involved with wine? It must have been somewhat early. And how did that happen? So I was 21. I got my first wine job at Bluefin in Times Square. Okay. Um, it was right around 2001, going into 2002. I was 21, so I really didn't know that much about wine. Uh -huh. But I had a really great mentor um, in Greg Harrington. He was sure. the wine director at the time for Be Our Guest. And he encouraged me to you know, look into the Master Sommelier program. So I started that in 2003. Wow. And Passed in 2009. Yeah, I mean, pretty much for flying colors, it seems like you pretty much sailed through. Do you really accredit that to some of the mentors you had or just your own focus? I mean, a lot of people take uh, quite a long time to go from the beginning to the end of the Master Sommelier program, which is quite rigorous by anyone's measure. Mm -hmm. I think in wine in general, it's all about your mentor. I mean, I can claim that, yeah, of course, I was dedicated and I was always driven and motivated. But really, I sped through it because I had a great mentor that was constantly pushing me go take the next exam, you're ready. I mean, I, I obviously didn't sail through it. I took my master's only exam four times. Uh -huh. But to get to the master's, I was, I mean, 24, and I showed up in London at the Dorchester for my first exam. So wow. that was pretty exciting. What would you say? Because I don't think in, in the history that I've seen, at least in New York, that, that there's ever been so much, quite so much, just broad-based interest in the Master Sommelier program. Uh, now you're a master, and now you teach young people in that program as well, and you mentor people uh, in tastings throughout the year who are interested in per pursuing that uh, accreditation. What would you say to some of those young people who are thinking about taking the exam? What should they know? And then what were some of the things that kind of helped you along the way in terms of preparation? Well, in terms of preparation, I mean, it's, it's like anything else, you know, you have to travel, learn about the wine regions. You have to, you know, constantly be going to tastings and reading all the time. And I mean, the world of wine changes every day. I don't know if I could pass today. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think if you desire to go that, that route in the wine business, you, you really have to be dedicated and, and constantly studying. What I would you say some of the benefits are? Maybe we should talk about that first. I mean, now that you are a master, you've done all this, you've sacrificed quite a bit. You went through the pro process. What do you think is the the, the takeaway? What what is the big help? I mean, it's a worldwide accreditation. Mm -hmm. It's something that you keep for your entire life. I don't think that you can't be a great wine professional and not go that route. I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. we have so many people that I really look up to in the New York and in general across the country that have never chosen to go that path. And mm -hmm. that's totally cool. Um, I mean, it's, it's almost like a, you know, a fraternity sorority. Sure. You have master sommeliers that are sort of family all across the world and certainly in the country. 
I mean, you know, it's the top that you can be in your field. Yeah. Certainly the average person will hear, oh, you're a master sommelier. And, and I mean, they recognize that as being the top tier. So certainly I've so, had many people ask, you know, about that inquire, you know, are you a master? I mean, it does seem to resonate with maybe not everybody off the street, but people course. who are more into wine, read wine publications that are more amateur level seem to know about it and respect it. Right. I mean, some people do it for a better job or they think that all of a sudden life's going to change the day you pass masters, you're going to make a ton more money. And that may or may not be true. I certainly, I think that, you know, I, I just flew to Florida because uh, the client, this, you know, big investment firm just wanted a master sommelier for Got the it. day at their, you know, client appreciation. Well, there is a dinner, certain so. level where they understand that you must know something because you've passed this exam. I mean, it's a benchmark that says, yeah, you're knowledgeable, which sure. is hard to measure sometimes in the field. You exactly. Know, especially if they're maybe not in the field themselves, you know. For sure. So tell us a little bit about some of the tricks that you use to get through. I mean, what are some of the things that kept you uh, going? Did you use flashcards? Did you uh, travel and then read about the region? Did you read about the region and get inspired to travel there? How did you go about it? I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I certainly have tons of flashcards. I was constantly on this website called Guildsom, which mm -hmm. is it's really updated and it has maps. Um, my entire apartment was a map. I mean, I had all the regions of Germany and the big post-it size, you know, I, I don't know how you call those big post card things. Sure. Maps on my ceiling and, you know, I don't know. I mean, ta three tasting groups a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. What at was 11 in the Madison closet? Park. Exactly. Oh, uh, so, no. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> is like in the, the, exactly. the map in the closet. Yeah. I'm sorry, Dana. Please <laughs> go okay. ahead. No, I mean, tasting groups were really helpful. Uh-huh. So you found that that social interaction, which I find that you are often involved in still today. Like Correct. you do that for younger people a lot. Um, yeah. I mean, the people that are in New York City's best restaurants right now are the people that I started my tasting group with. Mm -hmm. So you think about John Reagan running Union Square Hospitality Group, um, Michelle Couvreau at Per Se, sure. Risto at iFiori. So we all just started together. Yannick Benjamin of Ledu. He's really cool. I love him. He's the best. So yeah, we started together. Um, we, we often did theory groups as well. Got so it. just flashcards, asking each other questions. I mean, it's always better to study with a group. You kind of feel the community and the reason for getting up at nine in the morning. You're not going to sit by yourself at nine in the morning tasting wine blind. It's almost impossible. So sure. having that community. You feel like you don't want to let people down one. You exactly. Need to show I mean, up. it's just like going to the gym and meeting somebody. You're more likely to go when you know that someone's waiting for you. So. Right. And, and yeah, I and mean, those I, are all pretty smart, knowledgeable guys that can kind of, you can bounce things off of and it would have intelligent things to say. Exactly. And maybe they're somebody at that group that is really, really knowledgeable about Burgundy and has a different way of looking at it and, you know, helps you remember it in a way that you couldn't do it on your own or somebody that's like passionate about Germany and teaches you or helps you, you know, cement all of those regions into your head. So. But I guess one thing we should we should address is that, you know, all those people are guys and, and you are a younger woman. Have you found it harder? Have you found it easier? Um, what's that experience like? And what would you say to a young woman who maybe wanted to get in a profession herself? I never had a challenge being a woman. I, I never even felt it was relevant. I mean, nobody stopped me from doing anything because I was a woman. It just so happens to be that forever sommelier, not just masters, but forever sommelier, the face of a sommelier was more men than mm -hmm. women. I mean, I just think anyone can do it. And, and certainly we start to see more women in 
you know, buying positions and sommeliers and hopefully more and more master sommeliers, not only in New York, but across the country. There are currently 18 women um, in the United States and 20 worldwide that have the title. So I just think not enough people are putting their name in you know, their hat in the ring, if you will. So you think if someone has an interest, there's really nothing stopping them. Yeah. I mean, some people would say that women have better palates. I don't know. I mean, I have never done a case study, you know, Mm -hmm. I can prove that. It is something that you hear a lot that, that comes up where people are, are say women probably have a better palate for identifying flavors. I just think that we're just maybe a little bit more sensitive to things or maybe Uh more observant and, yeah, I mean, but I don't know that like that's a the fact. whole ball game in a way. For you know, sure. when it comes to wine, I find. I mean, mm-hmm. so what are some of the differences between running a corporate level program and now what you're doing now? I mean, that must have been a big kind of change. You know, you have 20 restaurants and you have a relatively modest wine bar, but sure. in one, you're you know a corporate level beverage director, you're making huge buying decisions across the group, and in another, it's your own project that you run, maybe without a huge HR or PR department. Mm-hmm. You know, and you kind of. Um, do your own plan. What? How has that changed your life? I mean, I was buying wine nationally, so mm-hmm. obviously I'm not doing that anymore. I was buying wine in Las Vegas, in Chicago, in New York. I learned a lot about the world of wine, or you know, the world of wine and national buying, which was really important for me. I think made a lot of connections working at Be Our Guest. It was, you know, one of the most important or one of the most powerful wine buyers in the city. Mm-hmm. So it was challenging when I first left because. You know, you have this big job and everybody's calling you all the time, inviting you to dinners, trying to, you know, get appointments with you. And then all of a sudden you quit your job and you're building a business. But everyone's like, not everyone, but to many people, you cease to exist. So it's kind of interesting, almost like spring cleaning. You know, you start all over again and figure out, you know, who are your real friends or who, you know, really cares about you as a wine buyer. And I wasn't even upset by it. I mean, if anything, it was it was a nice welcome break. Yeah, it is different when you go from a hundred emails a day of a bunch to of salesmen, <laughs> yeah, to like two people being like, "Hey, um, you know." What I found is that uh, it was often people who wanted advice in their own career who would ask you and need uh, for your time while you weren't a huge dude, and you'd be like, "I don't know, but could you give me some advice on my own career?" Like exactly. you're like, "Who's asking for the advice?" Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I remember one time this guy wrote a story about losing his job during a recession and then having it be where he went to his wife and he said, well, now we're going to find out who our real friends are. And she's like, well, I'd prefer not to know. <laughs> like, you know, sometimes it's nice if, you know, the world uh, doesn't uh, change on a dime because of the social position. But right. maybe you could speak to that more than I could. I don't know. I mean, what I was mean, that feeling like? It, it was funny because I was building a business, you know. I mean, I, I, I right. did everything You felt like you that. were still in it. I was, you know, well, I'm you scouting are still spaces. In it. Yeah. I'm, you know, putting a wine list together. I'm thinking about the design of the place and I would run into people and they were like, Oh, how's your year off? You know, right, right. How's unemployment? I'm like unemployment. I'm right. self-employed, but 70 so that, hours a week. So that was, I mean, it was interesting. Yeah. Um, but I mean, running my own wine, you know, my owning my own restaurant is, is amazing. Uh-huh. I mean, I'm the HR director. I'm last night I was a closing manager. So, um, you know, I'm really hands-on. I decide everything. I, you know, if I want every server in the restaurant to carry a tray, no matter what, even if we're slam busy, that's the role and that's, you know, that's the way. Whereas when I was working at Be Our Guest, as great as it was, sometimes managers, directors, you know, even the owner of the company, as he should, were, were making decisions that sometimes I didn't agree with. Mm-hmm. So it's fun to, to, you know, really believe in every single thing I do, every single glass of wine that's poured. 
if I want it to be $13 and it's more expensive cost, and I decide that that's what we need for that price point, I like being able to, to be the final decision maker. Although I also have a really, really amazing team and hire top talented people in the, in the industry. And so I'm always asking their opinion and trying to figure out ways that we can be better. So what is some of that vision that you have? I mean, what are you bringing that maybe somebody else wouldn't? I notice you seem to have more of a populist view to some wines. I remember when there was an early interview that you gave where you said, we're not going to just do kind of hipster, esoteric stuff. This is going to be a little bit more broad-based, and people are going to feel comfortable when they come here. Tell us a little bit about the program you've designed. Yeah, I love that. It It's almost one foot in the old world not old world meaning wine regions and one foot in the new world. So I didn't want to create a wine list that there were no wines that anyone recognized. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly I don't want all of my wine list to be supermarket brands and, and you know, just I, I wanted to have the esoteric, the indigenous grapes and wanted to introduce people to new things. But I also wanted people to feel comfortable opening the wine list and not just having wines they didn't recognize. So my style is a little bit more approachable, a little bit more, come on in, you know, I can teach you about wine or you really feel comfortable about Chardonnay. I'm not here to tell you not to drink it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you're not able to talk to every guest, even if you want to. Mm -hmm. So sometimes the wine list has to be something that they can navigate on their own. Right. And you don't always have time for that conversation Exactly. or they don't have time. Maybe they just want to make a quick decision. Yeah. I mean, and also I have to think back to your own life in wine. I mean, I didn't start off drinking Honduras Bizuri and mm-hmm. knowing what Chocolino was. I mm-hmm. mean, I started maybe with White Zinfandel. Now, I'm not going to go and put White Zinfandel on my menu, but, you know, having accessible, easy I heard to- Turley's making uh, White Zin now. Is it good? Yeah, I don't know. I haven't had it. It's a rumor that they're going... I swear to God. No, If somebody makes a good one, I'll, I'll Yeah, that's the rumor that it. they're going back. I, I mean, in kind of an ironic way, but for a high-quality White Zin, that they're, you know, from the, one of the top producers. Good to know. I just, I'm sorry, stop you. I apologize. <laughs> That's okay. Go right ahead. Please tell us a little bit about what are some of the tricks you use to make people feel more comfortable? I mean, when you design the list, uh, what are you thinking about when you approach typeface or when you approach layout or when you decide how many menus there's going to be or how you use pictures or what are some of the things you tell the staff when they want to talk to people and you say, hey, this is something that's helped me? I just keep things concise. You know, I try mm-hmm. not to talk over people's heads. So, I mean, I think you can read a guest and understand whether they want to know the differences of the Grand Cruz of Chablis or whether they just don't even know that Chardonnay is the grape. Mm-hmm. And so you have to just really look at your guests, Chardonnay's listen. Sure. Yeah, yeah, for okay. sure. Well, thinking, you know, sometimes I had an earlier interview up. today where I was like, oh, my God, I actually did screw up something very similar to that. But I'm sorry. Go no, ahead. I just think it's important to just listen. And that's one of my my really great skills and just listening to what people want and being able to just give it to them. And then sometimes, you know, having somebody order a wine, bring them exactly what they order, not trying to convince them that they shouldn't be drinking that, but maybe they have the wine that they wanted to order and you're excited about something else that's similar and you just bring them a small taste. Um, what we're really into these days is we are doing tons of blind tastings. Okay. And I think that it, it, even if you don't know anything about wine or you don't want to make a career out of it, it's really fun. It's an interactive experience. So I have a lot of regulars. I'm really, really, really grateful to have um, created sort of a neighborhood place. Uh-huh. And so when I recognize these regulars, I'm, I might just bring them, you know, half a glass of something to blind taste. Awesome. And just letting them explore that wine without any preconceived notions. Oh, this is, 
you know, going to be oaky because she told me she brought me Chardonnay. And so it's, it's really fun to see people explore wine. If, if at one point you had to do lists that, you know, uh, served a broad strata of, of customers because of the corporate environment, um, I think some people maybe might use the opportunity of having a, a personal statement to go a little bit uh, more obscure, but you haven't. And is that important to you to stay uh, broad focused? Well, I mean, yeah, for certain, when I was buying on a corporate level, we had to buy a little bit more um, well-known, recognized wines. And it was, it was, you would think that naturally I would go and, oh, this is my own place. I'm going to buy crazy wines, only wines that I know. And all of my, you know, wine geek friends, you know, these crazy things that no one's heard of. And, and I think that that's one direction. And, and for certain, you look at the great rest, the great wine bars, Tarwar and Paul Greco, and he's such an inspiring person. And he has wine lists that you can just open the, the wine by the glass list and not know any single grape. And that's one approach and it fits him. And it's, you, you know, it's really genuinely who he is. Mm-hmm. Like he wants people right. to try. There's no pretense about it. That's right. That's, that's who Paul. he is. Right. And that's Paul. And that's great. And, you know, I'm not just going to copy Paul and do exactly what he's doing. That's mm-hmm. right for him. But for me, it was always just a little bit more. I just wanted people to drink what they liked and I didn't want to teach people what to drink and I didn't want to, you know, say one thing was better than the other. So I just have always just been like, okay, you like that? Great. I'm going to find the best example of that and I'm going to serve it. I mean, I don't have, you know, 10 Malbacs. I have two, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm not, not having Argentine Malbec because maybe I don't think that, you know, people should be drinking it. People uh-huh. love it, you know, and, and it's funny because when you own a business, the goal is to get, I mean, for my business, the goal is to get a lot of people there, yeah. you know, people that know about wine and people that don't. So if I only create a wine list for those of us that know, then I've just taken half of the amount of people that I could possibly have come through my doors. And to me, that didn't make sense as a business owner. You're, we are not buying for ourselves. Like I, yeah, I might not be drinking Argentine Malbec every night, but I'm not everyone on the list is not for me only, you know? So yeah, I'm, I might say that. Is there a segue between, um, you know, maybe to cover that, is there a segue between what you think might be, uh, acceptable as a somi in a restaurant and then what might not be acceptable as an owner? I mean, is that two different viewpoints when you're trying to show return on investment and you want more people to come in, you know, would you find that maybe you're, a little bit more open or that some people who are a little bit more closed would maybe be less, um, you know, viable in terms of opening their own place. Yeah. I would say that, you know, there's, there's some ego involved with being a sommelier and running a wine list, you know? So sometimes you want the best, you know, the biggest wine list, the most, the, you know, you want to have every vintage that you can possibly have of all the great wines in the world. And, and, you know, maybe building a grand award is something that in the past I had as as a goal of mine. Mm-hmm. I wanted to create certainly this, for a lot of people. It was a goal. Yeah, and it, it's a great goal to have, but it's different when you're paying the bills. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you you just have to be a little bit smarter about it. And and so for me, my goal is to have a profitable business and employ lots of people, and you know, really just pay people well. And and you know, I signed a. 15 year lease. I want to be there for 15 years, you know, so I'm not thinking about, you know, building the world's greatest wine list of having every single vintage of every wine possible. I'm thinking about having great examples and having wine that's well-priced. And yeah, so I, I think it's, it's, it's important to think about wine as a business. And I think when you are your, 
when you own the place, you start to think about that. You know, I could easily buy a couple of cases of super expensive wine, but if I know I'm not going to sell that, maybe I'll just buy two bottles. Have you seen uh, a trend towards smaller wine lists? As, smaller wine lists, for as, sure. As costs have just gone up in terms of restaurant opening and space? Yeah, I think it's space, but I also think it's it's much easier to write a big wine list. You know, it's mm-hmm. easy to just say, yeah, I'm going to buy every producer of Burgundy instead of curating a list that maybe has a couple in the different categories and you don't have everything, but you have a good representation of the region. And I think um, I, I actually enjoy smaller wine lists. I think it's fun because you don't have to be committed to this wine for the rest of your life. You can you can have five different Syrahs on your list and you sell one for you know a month or so and it's great. People are excited about it and then you get the next one that you want instead of having 50 all at once. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there isn't um, a desire like there may have been before for like necessarily comprehensive. It's more about an experience that might be comfortable. I think so. Do you feel like putting a list that's super huge in someone's hands is a little intimidating or maybe kind of demanding on their time in a way that maybe a small list isn't? I do, especially in a wine bar. I mean, you're just coming in to have a glass of wine and catch up with some friends, and all of a sudden you have to spend 20 minutes just looking through this big wine list. And Again, so my approach was I wanted to be inclusive, and I wanted people to feel comfortable about wine and, and, you know, for someone that doesn't know anything, they get a big list. It's just like you kind of shut down. So I, I thought it was important to just have a concise list. And really, isn't that the job of a sommelier to be a curator, to sift through all of the wines for the guest? And mm-hmm, then, mm-hmm. And then, so they don't have to go to the So tasting. they don't have to go. Right. right. So they don't have to taste a thousand different champagnes because we did that already. And we found these producers to represent, you know, a good cross-section of the region. And yeah, when one is done and you, I think it's also important to, create a wine list and change it often just so you don't get bored. Mm -hmm. I mean, I change my wine. I print my wine by the glass page every, almost every single day. Sure. And I find that it's really fun for the staff because they're like, oh, okay, I kind of got bored of selling that Chinon and now you just put this new Alianico on the list and they just get excited again. It it keeps everything upbeat. In a way, I feel like that's never been easier because the wine world is so broad now and there's so much good, great wine coming out of so many different places. It's easy to switch it up all the time. For sure. Is seasonality important to you? Oh, for sure. So you maybe would go a little deeper and darker in the winter and a little lighter and crisper in the summer? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, we're we're also really conscious of just being seasonal with our menu. So as we start to see in the summer, you know, tomatoes and corn and watermelon and all of those things like our wine by the glass you know, is going to change to pair with those ingredients and at their peak sweetness and flavors for food. And um, for sure, I just started adding a bunch of rosés. I mean, it's sure. hopefully going to be spring soon. So, um, so yeah, so I, I, I'm definitely conscious of a little bit richer, fuller, more warming wines in the winter and sort of lighter, refreshing, lower alcohol, more brighter acidity towards the summer and the spring. And obviously that's what I do. I drink seasonally, so... Laura, thanks so much for taking the time. It was really great to catch My up pleasure. with you. It was nice to be here. Congratulations on, on the anniversary of Thank the you. opening in six months. And I think everyone should come see you in the next six months and see how you're doing. Sounds great. Thank you so much. I mean, one of the things I see about blind tasting is it often gets people um, more focused on the wine. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of times uh, when someone's just drinking wine, they may be just sort of drinking it without thinking too much about it. But if you say, hey, this is a blind tasting, people feel the need to answer what it might be. And so they feel the need to 
to pay a lot of attention to it, which is something that's actually hard to get people to do just normally in the context of dining because they're paying attention to their friends, they're paying attention to the atmosphere, they're paying attention to who's in the room, they're paying attention to the food. Uh, one of the things you can do to say, hey, I want you to maybe show a little attention to this wine is to give it to them blind because then they really do look at it because they feel somewhat of a need to think about what it might be, I've found. Yeah, speaking of staff training, that's something that we we do every day. So every day we have the learning hour, but it's it's kind of a joke because it's the learning 10 minutes. I don't know why I named it the learning hour, but it seemed fun. Um, and I just pour something blind for the staff. But what happens is we go around the table. Everybody says one thing new about the wine, whether it's looking at the wine, the sight, the smell, the nose. And then finally, that at the end of the table, somebody just takes a stab at what they think it is. But what ends up happening is we have this description, this picture of wine that maybe we wouldn't have if we just told them, okay, this is Sauvignon Blanc from Sancerre. Oh, I see. So then they can use all of the collective description to sell that wine or describe that wine to our guests. Okay. So each server learns from the other in terms of a verbiage that they might use at mm-hmm. the with the guests. Let's talk a little bit about how the list is designed. I mean, what goes on the list and what doesn't, and why would you pick one over another? Is it just... Um, price? Are there, is there a certain style you're looking for? You said you want to have a broad-based diversity. Are you looking for, hey, you know, I, I want something from the new world to represent this? I mean, how do you go about buying decisions? You're someone that has a lot of experience with this category in terms of, you know, you've bought at large scale. Now you're buying a little bit more personal uh, vision, but you want to accommodate customers. What are you thinking about when someone gives you a few glasses of wine and you're like, well, that's the one I want? Well, I try to buy wines that are classic examples of the place where they've come. Oh, okay. So I want a Chablis that tastes like Chablis, sure. which means chalky, crushed oysters, you know, briny, refreshing. So um, typicity is important. Typicity is really important. I mean, I don't want the the one Chardonnay or one Chablis that drinks like Sancerre. Okay. So because we all know in every category, there's kind of an odd ball producer or terroir that's a little bit different than the others. For sure. And in general, that's not what you're looking for. No. Um, I mean, I definitely want a wide variety in price points. So I want, you know, a Cabernet at $40 and then a Cabernet is 60 90 So I I try to only buy wines that I would want to serve my friends and drink myself. Got it. So, yeah, I mean. So if, it's, if it's, you're interested in it, that's like a number one criteria. If for you're sure. like, boy, I'm, I dig it, you yeah. know, that's that's making its way onto the list, mm-hmm. most likely. Yeah, and the, and the wine list is just organized by regions. So... Which is a classic way yeah, to do it. Yeah, classic way. And fairly concise way to do it, too. Exactly. You know, without a lot of some of the more paragraphs or lead-in discussions that you can have if you do it otherwise. Like, sometimes you have to under uh, like explain what style means if exactly. you're talking about style, I think. Mm-hmm. So what's next? Uh, it's been how many months? Six months. Six months. I think six months today, actually. What do you think is going to happen? Oh, hey, congrats. That's <laughs> great. I didn't realize that. Neither did I. It's nice that you spent the time with us on that day because that's kind of probably really important to you in a way. I mean, it, it took about six months to get it open, and then now you've been six months, so this is kind of like the year? It took about a year to open. Oh, okay. Between finding the space and and um, construction and New York City delays. Right. How how real are those? I mean, we often hear about how difficult it is to open up a restaurant in New York. Is it really difficult? It can be challenging. I mean, you know, there's a lot of things that are out of your control. So you're waiting for the building department, you know, election day comes up. So we're not coming today or, you know, you think your inspections happening one day and then two weeks later it happens and you forgot a couple things. And so now you have to get re-inspected, but relatively speaking, we were 
not as far delayed as a lot of other places in New York can be. So I think we planned originally on opening in October, and we en- we ended up opening at the end of November. Okay. So yeah, that's actually speaking, pretty it's, great. It's pretty good, and thankfully we were able to open before the holiday season, so we had a, a really, really great start. In terms of revenue, because sure. a lot of people are parties. out and going mm-hmm. out, and sure, and people can rent out the space. I mean, I think a lot of people... Uh, would envy that progression in terms of, hey, you know, I was, I got my master's on me. I was a buyer at a huge level in terms of corporate, national. And then, then I opened my own place. I mean, if someone were to go through that progression and think about what it would mean to open their own place, what are some of the things that you would recommend that they keep in mind? Like, what should they do first if they want to open their own place? We have to be well capitalized for sure. Uh I mean, people often think that they they don't realize how much money it takes and you want to make sure that you are well financed so that you can make decisions and you don't have to you know cut corners or or worry that you're not going to be able to pay your staff uh-huh. so that's one of the most important things i mean i had a lot of experience in opening places because one of my jobs for 3 years was i was a member of the opening team for steve hansen so i went all over the the country opening restaurants and i just i i kept really really good notes about all of the different punch list items that you have to keep in mind. I think, you know, having a great team and trusting if you hire somebody to do their job, a lot of times you hire great people and then you micromanage them, which never makes sense to me. I'm trying to think what else. That's pretty much it. But I mean, I would imagine it's a lot of day to day commitment too that you really need to set aside the time. It's not like a part time thing. No, for sure. I mean, I oversaw everything, construction, mm-hmm. design. I had um, every single fabric in the place I approved, you know, exactly well, where Well, it looks part. great. Thank I mean, you. I find it's a space that's very welcoming and fun Thank to you. be in. Like, it, it's, it has a certain polish but comfort about it. For sure. That I think is rare in the wine bar world because sometimes wine bars are either a little bit more purposely rustic or just rustic because they're kind of a little thrown together. Right. You know, in terms of the... Yeah, the inspiration was to feel like you're in someone's home. Uh-huh. You know, you're in your best friend's home, just having a glass of wine, having a conversation about wine. And so, you know, big communal tables. Um, I really, I really thought a lot of wine bars in the city, oddly enough, are super dark. Uh-huh. And it's like you're it's trying to really enjoy true. wine. And I don't really know if it's white, red, rosé, because I can't really see it. And a lot of places are, you know, very cozy and that's great and, and sort of, loud that's also you know it's it's a certain vibe but for me i wanted it to be slightly brighter really important that we had high ceilings so our ceilings are 17 feet high and so it was it was the type of space i was looking for just this bright more welcoming airy in a way exactly soft light i think i mean one of the thing about the lighting at cork buzz is it's not harsh it's it's kind of a glowing softer light which i I find is pretty rare actually but people always enjoy it when they're in it that kind of soft light yeah we hired a top lighting designer oh okay so i think i met that guy actually oh yeah he did yeah he came in here yeah i remember he was a nice guy um so why wine i mean you're a smart person you're super motivated you could have done probably probably anything you wanted to do i mean you're intelligent um you know, you have a lot of energy. What was it about wine that you said, you know what, I think this is the deal? Well, when I was really young, I knew probably at 10 or 12 years old that I wanted to be in the restaurant business. Okay. So my grandmother used to have these huge Sunday suppers. People were coming in the door while other people were leaving. It was an all-day affair. And it really it really was something I was interested in doing. Originally, I wanted to be a chef. 
just because it was right at the time when the only way you could make money or be successful, I thought at the time, was to be a chef. So my plan was to go to culinary school. I took a wine class just sort of to keep busy during okay. the summer and really fell in love with the idea of it. But it was more because it combined all of my passions into one thing. So I love to travel. I love learning languages. I love obviously eating and food. And so I love culture. I love, you know, geography and science. And so I felt like it, it combined all of those things. And that's, and that's really why I chose it. Got it. So many of your interests were just there. I mean, and you do get the opportunity. I mean, I, I think of you as someone who has traveled to many wine regions, but I also think of you as someone who is really good at developing relationships with the growers or maybe the distributors. I mean, do you, I mean, you must think that that's important. What would you say to someone who's like, Hey, um, you know, what's the world of wine like in terms of the people? Cause a lot of times it's easy to get so focused on the wine side of the wine world that sometimes we forget about the people who make the wine or move the boxes or uh, bring it to us. I mean, you're somebody I see who's especially engaging to the whole scene. Thanks. Why, why may that been, did, you know, did someone say to Greg or someone say, Hey, this is important. This guy, the local salesman, or is it just something you've always had? I'm really a social person. I love, yeah. you know, connecting people and I'm, I feel like I'm always putting people in playgroups. Like, have you, do you know this person? You know, you should know this person. This person's business to just be humble and realize that you might have, you know, a job right now, but you never know where you're going to end up. And I think to some degree, um, when you're a buyer, you can be a little bit, you know, snobby or think that you're, you know, the best thing and, you sort of dismiss the the salespeople like they should be working for you. And I just always had a different approach. I always felt like everyone in the industry was a partner, you know, so you're selling me wine, but I need you to sell me wine. And so I, I, I tried not to be dismissive of people. I tried not to keep people waiting or, you know, not show up for appointments, which sometimes happens in the wine industry. So I don't know. I mean, you're just being you basically yeah. is what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. But do you find that, that's been really positive. I mean, it, it seems like things have progressed along well, maybe partly because of that. Yeah, Greg taught me when I first started in the wine business. He was like, you only have one name in this business. You know, whether you're a buyer right now for one restaurant or you're going to go and buy wine for 20 restaurants, at, at the end of the day, Laura, Manic, you know, that's the name you have for the rest of your life. So just make sure you keep your reputation and you're just really, you know, kind and and just, you know, treat people the way you want to be treated. And, I mean, it seems so simple, but sort of how I always approached it. Got it. And let's talk a little bit about that because uh, one of the things I see you doing now is engaging with social media a little bit. I mean, I remember one time you linked to something I wrote uh, mm -hmm. on Facebook and it was like 10,000 people showed up to read it, um, because of you. And I was like, who is this person exactly that um, all these people seem to really engage with? I mean, I think... I just feel like you could say like, I love today and like, t you know, take a picture of us of like the sun coming up and like a hundred thousand people will be like, yes, you know, like you have a lot of people kind of like dig your thing Thanks. and in the social media world, when you engage it, do you have something in your mind when you're writing on Twitter or when you're on Facebook, that's like, this is my persona or does it just, is it just flowing out? Like, is this just you or do you keep certain things in mind? I mean, it's just me. I, I don't overthink what I'm going to write or how I'm going to engage with people. I try, and I'm 
obviously getting busier and busier, but I try to just respond to people. You know, people mm -hmm. are in my place and they're, oh, this is the best, you know, bucatini I've ever had. And I'm just try to respond and just say thanks. And it was great to have you here. And it seems like an extrapolation. What you were saying is that you're good at listening to people and you are good at being there for relationships and that you would use social media in that way. Yeah. It's interesting because before I even opened my place, I started putting wine tips. I, I built my website and I started putting wine tips, wine tip of the day on yeah, Facebook that's and right. linking it to Twitter and started to talk about my business before it even opened. It was interesting because I really wanted people to feel a part of it. So along the way, while we were doing construction, I was posting photos. You know, I was, I was engaging with people when they, that, that they were a part of the opening process, telling them about, you know, I'm wrapping, you know, MDF board and polybatting and running to canal rubber and putting my, my wall panels together. And I had some advice from a, a few friends and they were like, don't put anything on your Facebook pictures of the interior because you're not going to get any exclusive, you know, oh, okay. footage in any of these, in any of these magazines. And I was like, nah, you know what? That's not me. I really wanted people to be included. And same thing goes for anyone in the business that is thinking about opening their own place. Yeah. I've got, you know, documents I'm happy to share, you know, checklists. I have, you know, you can come look at my architectural drawings. I'm happy to help, you know, advise on like, a bar design or anything. I mean, I just, I feel like as a community, we are much better together than we are, you know, just by ourselves. And I think in general, New York is really exciting for wine right now. I remember in the beginning, people used to say in New York, you know, everybody's for themselves and just head down at tastings, not, mm -hmm. not engaging, not talking. When I first started, I think it, it might've been true. Now more than ever, I think we're a, a really great community. So some of the things maybe you picked up from Be Our Guest, what are some of the things that maybe you learned while you were there about restaurants that maybe have carried through? I feel like <laughs> there must be a couple of things. There's tons. There's a lot. I mean, I learned so much from Be Our Guest and from Steve Hansen, and I'm still really good friends with him. Actually, he sent me an email this morning. It was funny because I sent an email blast out for Mother's Day, and he sent me an email that says, uh, girl, where is the date in the subject line, and what time does this brunch start? And so he's basically telling me, you know, when you send an email blast, you left out two of the most important things. Sure. It's like, damn, you're right. It's and like that book, The Tipping Point. Exactly. Know? It's like, oh, if we'd only included the time it began, exactly. you know, people would have been here. So, um, but no, I mean, he, Steve was almost like a psychologist in restaurants. Is that true? Know? Yeah, I think I've so. I've never met the man, so. He's if, awesome. If you, um, could, you know, I mean. He would walk into a dining room and know exactly that somebody was cold and, you know, really just notice the lighting, the music level. And so I joke that I'm, I'm just obsessed with those things. So, you know, I'm always like, the lights are too bright in here. You know, if it, it feels the music is not loud enough or it's too loud or look at that woman over there. She's, you know, next to, she's trying to have a, she's on a date, but she's sitting next to a group of rowdy people. Like, mm. why did we seat those people there? Right. There's a better way to there really know, is an art to that. orchestrate the dining room. And so that's something that was huge from Be Our Guest that I learned. Um, you know, to some degree, systems and really just having things in place so that you're not, you know, scrambling every day. And so, you know, Be Our Guest is known for a lot of technology and systems. And I, I mean, I don't have... I don't necessarily need all of those right. things. So Somewhat I just took the best scale. of those things and, you know, use them on my own to 
for my own business. So who's coming into the restaurant? Are we seeing mostly regulars from the neighborhood? Are we seeing a wine crowd who kind of travel to wherever serving interesting wines at the time? Are we seeing regular kind of diners who are hungry and just want dinner? I mean, what's what's going on? I think it's a combination. I mean, we have those two back rooms, which are are great for large corporate events. So mm-hmm. we have we've been doing a lot of you know big wine focused dinners or cocktail parties. So we have some clients um, in you know finance and lawyer or attorney type thing, and so we have that. But I mean, our neighborhood is we have a lot of regulars from the neighborhood. We have a lot of industry people, so it's a combination. Got it. Well, I, I guess in any way that's a successful restaurant, right? If there's a like a broad based mix. Yeah, I think we have a lot of people that are knowledgeable about wine and are in the industry, and then we have somebody that doesn't know anything about wine and just wants to learn more. And I feel like that's the business we we always intended to build, mm-hmm. and so we we've so far been successful at that. So you can kind of interface with the place at the level that you bring, correct? Like whatever that might be. And what's the plan for? Upcoming. What are, what are we going to be hearing about you doing in the next year or so? Oh, there's so much. Um, I'm thinking about doing a wine club. I'm thinking about expanding, maybe not having the exact same size of the, of the place, but definitely um, creating other cork buzzes. Maybe really. So maybe you're in the city. Six months in, you're like, hey, yeah, why not? Maybe, you know, I've why always not? I've always been like, what's next? So it's yeah. kind of where I'm at. I am thinking about doing. MW, Master of Wine. Really? Oh, cool. But um, I found that like there's a fair amount of overlap in the basics. Like once you get the foundational stuff, a lot of that's the same. So in I'm a way, sure, yeah. you can kind of like, you know, just kind of go right into the advanced because you already have the foundation. Exactly. So you know, between the two programs. So yeah. Cool. I don't know. Who are some of the people that have really stood out besides Greg Carrington in terms of inspirations in your career, whether in New York or not in New York in the wine business? Well, I mean, there's so many people. I'm just trying to make sure I include everybody. Fred Dame, for certain, mm-hmm. um, Master Sommelier. He lives in San Francisco. Um, he kind of got the ball rolling for the Master Sommeliers in America. I believe he kind of brought it over here. Yeah, absolutely. I think he was one of the first Americans to pass the exam. I mean, Ken Fredrickson, as an entrepreneur, he's uh-huh. you know, just always been an inspiration. Raj Parr. Great inspiration. Paul Greco, for sure. Just, you know, just all the interesting things that he's done in New York City. Sure. I mean, he certainly has a lot to say about what wine bars are. Yeah, for sure. At least, you know, more noteworthy wine bars. Yeah, for sure. Steve Olson is also a really great inspiration of just, you know, being driven and, um, you know, really just creating a business for himself. What are you super excited about in terms of, um, wines themselves like a certain region or maybe a yeah. producer i've always been excited about champagne mm-hmm. i just i really wanted to almost like be my thing you know mm-hmm. i i, I want to know every single grower i want to taste every single champagne that there is i used to do this thing run to aster every friday and just grab a, a different grower champagne that i'd never heard of i mean i worked harvest there in 2010 so i'm i'm super excited by it but I really want people to drink more of it. So I'm thinking about the summer of champagne and only serving champagne by the glass at my place for the whole summer. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm just using because I don't think I could get away with it. Right. But, but oh. certainly I, I really want people to drink more champagne. Got it. And what do you think some of the things that have changed there? I mean, I mean, that might be one conversation that you might 
when I was at your place, you served Baresh, which is mm-hmm. not well known and is something that, you know, I think is well regarded there, but maybe we see less of his bottlings here. Are there, uh, specific kind of changes that you see going on in Champagne, maybe over the last decade that you want to comment on? Yeah, I just think that there's more there. We're seeing and people are buying more grower champagne and it's not just, not that there, there's anything wrong with the grand marks or the large houses, but people are willing to explore. I think champagne used to be just, you know, a luxury celebratory thing. And, and now people are into, okay, this guy's aging in oak and this guy's doing zero dosage and this guy's doing batonage or ML or whatever. Um, and I think it's more exciting. Does seem to have opened up a little bit in terms of, especially technique, yeah. you know, and maybe rediscovering of terroirs, but technique. I mean, one guy might do all reductive, and another guy might do oak, and this guy might do Solera, and this For guy sure. might do all one vintage, and this guy might do all one grape variety. It seems like it's kind of, at least maybe what we're hearing about is those guys because they're maybe more polarized, and that's an easier story to tell. Like yeah. that's an article if a guy does it a little different, but we seem to see a lot of these guys who are doing things a little differently, whereas. Maybe 15 years ago, I feel like that story would have been a little bit more homogenized or maybe exactly. feel different. I no, I, I agree completely. I mean, I even think, you know, if you look at the region of the Obe, you know, and, and mm-hmm. how many of the great producers now that were, that I, I know me and a lot of my friends are really excited about yeah. are coming from the south of Champagne. And before, you know, nobody even knew that, you know, any producer in the Obe because it was really just a blend from all the more popular regions. I think the challenge in Champagne and maybe what I should do, actually, what I will do now that I think about it, is pricing. A uh-huh. lot of times, maybe people are not drinking Champagne every day because, you know, to to, to start off, you're thinking about $25 glasses of yeah, wine. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, that's it, the thing about a summer of Champagne that would be kind yeah. of tough. would be like, hey, okay, you can start at 25 and move up to 100 Yeah, you know, that's not glass. really fair. But I guess you could do a lot more volume if you just move the price point down exactly. as long as you are making enough margin to kind of keep that sustained if, if the volume was there. Do you want an inside scoop then only for you? I do. That's All exactly right. what I'm, I'm hoping. Okay. To so get. from 10 p.m. So from now on at 10 p.m., yeah. I'm going to do half off all of my champagne by the glass. Awesome. Everything on the list will be half off after 10 p.m. So. And how long are you open till? I'm open till 1 a.m. on the weekends and we 12 need to on get the weekends. This interview out stat. Yeah. I'm looking at my producer with an eye that says we are first in a no. Exactly. I might come celebrate this with you on your sixth, six month anniversary. Sounds good. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, all drink to that pod.com. That's I L L drink to that P O D.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.